We're here today at the point where we're going to finish up this series of sermons uh, called Story. And over the last three weeks, what we have done is investigated the entire story that God is weaving in the history of this world. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I was talking uh, with a pastor friend of mine and just said to him that I was covering the whole Old Testament in a week. And he was kind of, that's a kind of a daunting task. But as I thought about it, we're going to cover all of history in four weeks. And so it's been a rapid pace that we've been on. And as we've gotten to where we've gotten in the story, if you'll remember, this great event has happened. And the truth is, and we're going to review in just a minute where we've, how we've gotten to here, most stories that we know kind of end where we ended last week. When you think about the great stories that we know from our generations, that whenever the hero arrives on the scene and he conquers the enemy and gets rid of the curse, usually the story is over. Or there's a brief little thing attached to the end of it. I was thinking about this uh, a couple of weeks ago. We were watching a great modern retelling of Christianity, the Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it was on TV, and we were watching it. And as they get to the end, and that great big battle scene, and Aslan the lion has literally been killed and then risen from the grave as a representative of Christ, and he comes back into the battle and slays all the enemies, that is almost kind of an afterthought. And then when they get done with it, they just go quickly to this scene where celebration is happening, and the children are crowned as kings and queens, and the movie ends rather quickly. If you think of the great fairy tales, whether it be Snow White or Sleeping Beauty or any of those, when the prince shows up and rescues the princess, the wedding happens immediately, right? But in our story, the ending is a long time from the victory. Now, if you remember, several weeks ago, we started with the first sermon that was once upon a time in a land far, far away. And we talked about the fact that God as part of this community of love in the Trinity, created us to join in in the dance that they are having in their community with one another. And as He created us in that place, He placed us on the earth to be a part of the fellowship with Him and also to take care of this earth that He has created and to spread His fame throughout the earth. But an enemy arrived on the scene, tempted man, and man rebelled. We then talked the next week about the fact that in the midst of this story, promises were made and promises were broken. Over and over again, God made promises to His people and they made promises back to Him. And while God always kept His promise, the people rarely kept theirs. And so we ended in this cycle of promises made and promises broken and continually trying to reach God by religion, by doing things, by who we are, what we're doing, and finding that over and over again it was completely inadequate to restore the relationship that God had called us to. But just at the right moment, the New Testament uses the phrase, in the fullness of time. In the New Testament, there are two ways to count time. One is the literal ticking of a clock, if you will. 
And the other is to talk about opportunities. And just at the right moment, Prince Charming arrived and the curse was broken. Prince Charming arrived. Jesus showed up on the scene, lived a perfect life. He exchanged his life for our life. He exchanged no sin for our sin. He paid the penalty on the cross. And when he died on the cross and said, it is finished, the curse was broken. Three days later, he rose again from the grave and came to a point where we left off last week and begin this week. For you see, the story doesn't end there. In fact, this is an interesting story because this story never ends. When I was growing up, there was a uh, a movie that came out that uh, I just really liked, and I think they're remaking it, and I'm afraid to death what they're going to do to it. You ever have those things that remake something, you're scared with how they're going to remake it? The never-ending story. Anybody ever seen that movie? It's got a big cute dog in it, right? Flies all around. And the point of the story is that the story went over and over and each time somebody new was placed in it. Well, this is not the never ending as in sometimes we talk about the never ending like, uh uh-oh, it's a never ending. This is the never ending like going on and on forever in a joyous way. And so we come to the place today where that is set in motion and the bride is awakened. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. You think all those fairy tales of old. There's always a kiss or a moment, right? And when the kiss happens, if the bride is asleep, she awakens. I saw there's a new movie coming out this fall. I don't know whether it's going to be any good or not. I don't know if it's wholesome or not, but it's a new movie where instead of when the princess kisses the frog, the frog becoming a prince, the princess becomes a frog. That was kind of done a couple of years ago when Uh, A few years ago when the movie Shrek came out and instead of the ogre kissing the princess and him becoming a prince, she became an ogre. All right. So our world is trying to flip these things on their heads. But the point in all of this is something happens that awakens the bride. Now, let me ask you a quick question. In our story, who is the bride? The church. Isn't it interesting that that's exactly what the New Testament calls the body of believers? A bride. Verse 16 of chapter 28 of Matthew. Here we have the hero, the prince, if you will, the king, the husband, getting ready to depart. And he's got 11 disciples around him on the Mount of Galilee, or in Galilee at a mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Verse 17 is one of those verses that just one of the reasons you know the Bible's true is because they put stuff in there that if they were making up the story, they would never put. Right, Verse 17, after all that Jesus done, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. We're not going to have time to cover that today, but it's just interesting. Jesus said to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now we know that right here is not actually the full awakening of the church. Because the full awakening of the church doesn't happen until a few, uh, a couple of books later in the book of Acts. 
when the church is gathered around and they're gathered around and they're there waiting on Jesus and Jesus gets ready to ascend to the Father and he says, I've given you all, power is going to come to you. When it does, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But he gives the basic instructions to them and he says, listen, the story is not over. You see, they thought he rose again from the grave. They thought now is the time to restore the kingdom. In fact, they thought... If you look at Acts chapter 1, they get there and one of them says, Hey, hey, Jesus, is now the time? Is it now? Is the story over? Are you going to make it to where everything's all right? Is the story finally complete? And Jesus basically says, It's not over. You ever watch a television show or a news story on television and... You get to the end and you think the story's about to be finished and you're excited that something's about to happen and all of a sudden the words come fading onto the screen that says, To be continued. You ever been there? Now in today's world, all those kind of things are spoiled for us because the internet and news and all tells us that there's going to be one of those shows coming on. But I still remember as a kid when I was watching a cartoon. I used to like those cartoons that would be on in the afternoons. I don't think they do that anymore, but they did when I was growing up. Transformers and G.I. Joe and all of those. And there would be special two-part episodes that you didn't know were going to be two-part episodes. And so you would get to what you thought was the end of the story, and it would look like some that they weren't ever going to win, and then it would say, to be continued. Well, basically what happens when Jesus is getting ready to send back to the Father is the disciples, the apostles, they think the story's over. And Jesus says, guess what? It is to be continued. And so he gathers them around and he says, listen, what's going to happen is you're going to form a body, a group, and your goal is to spread my fame throughout the earth. One of the things that I think is real easy when you go through the story, especially like we have, and especially after last week, is if you're not careful, you begin to think that the story is all about you. And let me tell you that the primary reason Jesus died and rose again from the grave was not because of us. Now, that is a major part. Don't hear me say that he didn't die for you. He did. But it's not the primary reason. The primary reason we find out in the book of Romans, and I mentioned it last week, is so that God could be just and still be in a relationship with us. It was to bring glory and honor and praise unto the Father. You see, life is not about us. And so when he gives us our new marching orders, this new marching orders is not about us. It's about spreading his fame and telling his story throughout the earth. And so he gathers them all up and he says, all authority in heaven has been given to me. Listen, I've got everything I've got. Go and make disciples. And so he's trying to begin the process of waking up the bride. I know that some of you out there are immediate risers. That when the alarm clock goes off, that when the moment that you know it's time to get up, you hop out of bed, you run to the shower, you get your clothes on, and you're ready to go. But some of us take a little more than that. Amen? I read somebody this week said, isn't it amazing how we cannot in our life see things around? We can't 
determine what's on the television across the room. We can't hear all that we need to hear. But when that alarm clock goes off without opening an eye, I can magically reach across and touch the snooze button before it rings for a second time. It's almost like here Jesus is beginning the process of waking up the church. The full awakening is going to come when Pentecost happens and the Spirit that is promised, the Holy Spirit, that we're going to take a little time at the end of this fall season to talk about the Holy Spirit and what it means for our lives. But the Holy Spirit is going to rush in and the bride will fully awaken. And the truth is today we are still in that process of being awakened by our Savior and His Spirit. So let me ask a couple of quick questions. What is the church? Let me just say, as a part of a sermon, there is no way I can cover what the church is. I just thought I'd bring a little visual illustration. I took a class recently in my studies on the church, and this was half of our reading for the class. So I have read all this again this week, and I'm about to recite it to you one by one. All right? There's no way we could cover all that, right? And so what I'm going to give you today is a very basic understanding of the church. But here it is. This is what the bride is. This is who the Christ has called to live out this story. And the first thing is it's a collection of individuals who have given their life to the Savior. It's a collection of individuals who have given their lives to the Savior. That doesn't mean we're perfect. That doesn't mean that we're whole. It just means that we have accepted the gift that Jesus Christ has given. Now, here's the second thing. It is universal and one. The church is made up of individuals who have given their life to Jesus for the last 2,000 years. One of the most interesting things to me is when I read stories of the saints of old, when I read stories of a man like Polycarp who gave his life in the Roman Colosseum, or I read stories of a guy like Augustine, or I read of a man named Origen, or Martin Luther, or read of great saints throughout history, what I realize is we're all part of the same church. And so it's one, it's universal, it's united, but it's also a, a represented in many locations. Amen? There's no one church meeting today that is the church. And there's probably not many churches today that is made up of holy people that are in the church. You realize that just because you're in the church doesn't mean you're in the church, Right? Right? Just because your name's on a roll in a church does not mean you are part of the church. And so what we have to understand is that the Scripture makes a distinction between the big C church, that's the universal, all believers in all times that are a part of the body of Christ, and little C church, which is local manifestations of that. But we need to understand that the way that God has chosen to take His message throughout this entire earth is through those little C's, like us. Now, we also learn from Scripture that the church is set apart. It's different. It's not just another social organization. It's not just another club to come meet with your friends. It's not just something else that we do on our schedule. That church, little c, in local places is part of a grander, mightier scheme. In fact, we are helping now the author to write the story. And what makes us different is that we are built on the declaration of who Jesus Christ is. You remember that story in the New Testament when Jesus says, hey, I'm just a quick opinion poll here. Who's everybody saying that I am? What's the word on the street? What are people saying about me? 
And they start giving answers. Well, some say you're Elijah, a prophet, John the Baptist. And then Jesus looks at him and says, but here's the real important question. Who do you say that I am? And Peter steps up and says, well, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. That's a two-part answer. One is that you are the chosen one. You are the human chosen instrument of God to deliver us from all of these evils. And yet you are also divine in the fact that you are the Son of God. That you are one with Him. That you are God Himself. And so Peter, even I don't think he understood fully what he was saying. You ever just say something and then later you go, wait, man, I, I got it there. He just says it. And Jesus says, blessed are you. Simon, because this was not revealed to you by any human thing. This was revealed to you by the Father. And on this rock, he renames him Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The truth is that what he says there is not that on Peter, although that's been interpreted through the centuries, that it was Peter he was building his church on. What he's saying is, I'm building my church on the declaration that I am the Messiah the Son of God. So that's what the church is. And here's the interesting thing about our story. is because if you go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and even the first eight verses of the book of Acts, that's all of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And yet we have lots more of New Testament there, right? Because the truth is, in our story, after Prince Charming arrives and the curse is broken, the bride awakens and waits. The bride awakens and waits. Just to be real honest, Christianity is kind of a crazy belief system. I'm okay saying that because Paul said that if I'm a fool, I'm a fool for Christ. That's okay. But we talk about that we have been saved, but we are being saved. We talk about the fact that it is finished, but it will be finished. We talk about the fact that Jesus paid it all, but he's not yet claimed all that he paid. Right? Theologians, and I've used this term before, call this the already not yet phenomenon. That we are already saved, but we are not yet saved. That we are already clean, but we are not yet clean. Now, that sounds a lot crazier until you actually live your life. Because in my life, there is no doubt that the Savior has washed me clean, and yet I find myself getting dirty on a regular basis. Amen? That's about you, not me, but amen? And so we're in this process of waiting. And I couldn't help but think, as Jesus talks about even here in Matthew chapter 28, that surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What he's saying is that I'm here, I'm waiting with you as we move towards the end of this age. If you think about it, what he's saying is, as long as you're working, I'm going to be right alongside of you. Now, we know he sent the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will be there. But we also understand that this is a process of waiting for completion. Somebody has said about the local church in the midst of the waiting that this is what we are. A local church is a community of regenerated believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. 
In obedience to Scripture, they organize under qualified leadership, gather regularly for preaching and worship, observe baptism and communion, are unified by the Spirit, are disciplined for holiness, and scattered to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission as missionaries to the world for God's glory and their joy. That's pretty good. And what it means is that our goal right now while we are waiting is not just to wait. How many of you in this room really like just waiting? Let me see your hands. We're unanimous on something, amen? None of us like to just wait. I mean, sometimes I'm, you know, when I'm, when I'm at a red light even or I'm, a, I'm in a doctor's office or I'm one of those places where you have to wait, I am the most impatient person you can imagine when I have to wait. Growing up, I used to sit at my desk in school and just tap my foot like that all the time. If I wasn't tapping my foot, I was tapping my hand. I'm just in constant movement. My dad is the same way, and so my mom said when I was born that that's just I just got it from him. But I'm just constant movement, and when I'm waiting, I'm shifting, looking. And one of the reasons I think that is because it's a biblical concept. I don't know if you knew that or not, but fidgeting is biblical. Amen? All all you fidgeters out there with me, say amen. All right. Here's the reason. Because waiting in the Bible is not passively sitting and allowing something to come to you. Waiting in the Old Testament and the New Testament is passionately pursuing God until He decides to show up at the moment that He has decided and bring to completion what is being brought to completion. It is an active waiting. And so when it says up there that the bride awakens and waits, she doesn't sit on her tukus and do nothing. And churches across this land, one of the reasons I love the last part of this is because we have taken waiting to mean bunkering. To being inside and gathering in our little cells and we put everybody together and we get together and we worship and we pray and we sing and we talk. And man, that was good. Ooh, that was good. Boy, he did a good job this morning. Boy, I like that song this morning. It was really good. And then we leave this place and we've hunkered down so much we don't look outside. Now, we've talked about this. But don't mean we're doing it. And part of the act of waiting is exactly what Jesus says. It's not passive. He says, as you're going, the only, the only command in that whole passage is make disciples of all nations. As you go, make disciples. And so as we're waiting in this already not yet, we realize that what we have is a down payment on the fulfillment and we are called by God to be actively involved in reaching people with His story. In Jewish culture, there was an interesting phenomenon called the betrothal. Now we call it today an engagement. But for us, engagement really meant you just put a ring on somebody's finger, and you start planning the wedding. In their day, it was harder to get out of an engagement than it was to get out of a marriage. Once you were engaged, you were promised to one another, and that lasted until you were married. And that betrothal period was a period of getting to know one another. It was a period of families interacting. It was a family. It was a period when things were decided about how they would live and where they would live. It was a much more um, 
involved process than ours today. You remember when Mary and Joseph find out that Mary's going to have a baby and Joseph doesn't know what to do because he's betrothed to her? And he thinks, maybe I just need to do away with Mary quietly so as not to embarrass her. And what happens in the New Testament is when Jesus awakens us as a bride, he puts us into a time of betrothal. And we're waiting. Now the important thing is to live for his glory and as if the wait is going to end any time now. The bride awakens and waits. And what we wait for is happily ever after. You know what I love about Scripture? It doesn't give us a full picture, does it, of what the end times are going to be? If you ever come across a pastor on TV that tells you he knows exactly how the end times are going to happen, turn the channel quickly. All right? Jesus told his disciples while he was on earth, he didn't even know at that time when it was all going to take place. I think he's been clued in by the Father right now. They know, but we don't. But what I love is it gives us a glimpse. And the final book of Scripture is a book called Revelation. It's not Revelations, it's Revelation. Because it's the revelation of Jesus to the Apostle John. It's not a series of visions. It's not a series of revelations. It is the revelation. That means it is the final word on what will happen. So when somebody tells you they've got a revelation about the end times, say, I've got a revelation too. It's called revelation. Now here's the thing. What we're going towards in the happily ever after is so unbelievable that he can't even explain it in words that we understand. And if you think you understand revelation, you don't. Amen? Some of you just got offended. I apologize. Because it's not written in a way that we would understand. But it's written in a way that reveal means literally to pull back the curtain. And it's almost as if God says, I want them to get a vision of what the end is going to be kind of like. And so I'm going to pull the curtain back just enough where they get a glimpse. But there is no way that I can show them what it's going to be like. And so we are moving constantly towards happily ever after. You know, when I was growing up and there would be a story that would end and they lived happily ever after, you know what my first question was? How? What did they do? Now, I know as a writing it's just convenient to put that there so you don't have to explain anything else, right? But God gives us a glimpse. And what I love is that he tells that what happened at the beginning of Eden is that creation was marred and that gradually through these thousands of years, he's been laying the foundation, laying the groundwork, laying what's going to happen. And Jesus came at the right moment. He gave his life for us. We have accepted Jesus. The church is now working towards that final conclusion. And when it comes, he is going to come and set right all that has been wronged. Let me ask you a quick question before we get to a little more about this ending, where does the Bible say we will spend forever and ever and ever? With God, in eternity, where? Here. Right? Right? It says in Revelation that when he looked up, he saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
here's how the story, and people that write stories love this kind of stuff, where it ends where it began. What we have is at the end of the story, earth is recreated in its original beauty. And you and I, along with Christ, our Heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit, are living here in the most joyous life you can imagine. Now let me tell you, really growing up, a lot of times I heard about heaven, and I wasn't that excited about going there. I did not envision heaven, greatness being, sitting on a cloud playing an instrument with wings behind me. Some of you may look forward to that. I don't. I didn't imagine heaven really being exciting if it was kind of like an oversized cracker barrel with rockers on the front porch we all were sitting in. Now, I like cracker barrel. Amen? It's good. I like it. But the thought of just kind of sitting and relaxing and not doing anything is not that exciting. But Scripture gives a different picture than the church had always taught me. Imagine that. It's of adventure and excitement and the best things of this earth being recreated in ways we can never imagine and in a way that we enjoy them beyond what we can have imagined. I mean, we're talking about a place that Scripture says where tears will be wiped away. Where when we turn on the news at night, I don't know if there'll be news in heaven, but just go with me with this, all right? When we turn on the news at night, there'll be no swine flu or shootings or drug charges, no abuse, no downturn in the economy, no layoff news, no protest in the streets. It'll be a place of complete unity and harmony where we, as the individuals created by God, join Him in the dance of a lifetime. And I'll tell you and be real honest with you, the thing that's most exciting to me is that I'm going to be with my Savior. I love how the book of Revelation ends. Did I ask you to turn there if I didn't turn there? We started in Genesis 1. We might as well finish in Revelation 22. Amen? Because in those mornings when I wake up, I heard somebody this week say they were getting older every day. Something new doesn't work like it should. And when I wake up, even at 33, and I have something that's not working as it should, that's hurting more than it should, I think about these verses. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. We didn't have time today to talk about that you will be judged as Christians on what you've done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life. Remember, what was the one thing that God barred them in Eden from eating after they ate of the knowledge of good and evil? The tree of life. Remember the protection there? He says, when it's over and you get there, what do we get to eat from? What does that mean? It means we live forever. It may go through the gates into the city. Now, it's already described the New Jerusalem in chapter 21. You can go back and read that, but it is an impressive thing. Somebody has calculated, and I don't remember the exact dimensions, but it's about the size of the United States, the city of God. 
outside, verse 15, are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexual immortal, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. What he basically says is, if you don't accept what God has done for you, then you are cast out of enjoying his presence. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. The Spirit and the bride. Who's the bride? Church. Say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. John then goes on to say, I warn anyone who hears these words of the prophecy, if anyone adds things, God will add to the plagues. If anyone takes away, God will take away what is described in this book. Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. I love John just writing as a little note. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. John was writing the book of Revelation to a group of Christians that were persecuted on every side. They were pressed but not crushed, but they were ready to give in. And John says, do not give in because our Lord Jesus is coming back. And the end of the story really is a new beginning. And when Jesus one day splits the eastern sky and we look to Him and see Him coming, riding on the white horse, coming with the saints of God who have gone before us, riding behind Him for the ultimate victory celebration in what Scripture describes as a wedding feast. Now I want you for a minute to get out of your mind every Baptist wedding you've ever been to. Amen? Because I've been to some weddings that are not exactly the kind of party I want to have. Amen? Now, don't, don't, don't say amen if you're thinking of your own, all right? We're talking about a Jewish wedding celebration that lasted for days and had the best food you could imagine. It was a party and a feast. And one day when Christ descends again, He will take us with Him to the place that He has prepared for us. The new heaven and the new earth will begin. They will descend and we will rule forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I I mentioned the Chronicles of Narnia just a minute ago. And I love how that series of books ends, because it ends after the last battle is the name of the seventh book. And I hope they make them all. There's some studio trouble. I hope they make them all. But the last words of the last book of his retelling of the Christian story says this. And so they began a new story of which we do not know and cannot understand but one in which every page was better than the one before, and the story never ends. This morning I got a text from Barbara Forbes, who just said she wishes she's upset she's not here. They're on vacation, but she's thinking about us. And she said, I'm upset I'm going to miss the end of the story. She said, because. She said, when I get 
to the end of a great book or a great movie, I'm always upset I have to say goodbye to those characters and those people. She said, but today you're going to give the end of a story that you never have to say goodbye to those people and to that story. So the question is, what do we do in the midst of it? Well, first of all, we make sure, you make sure, that you have come to a place in your life where you accepted what Jesus Christ has done for you. And then the second thing is, you join Him in writing the story. You see, you've got friends and neighbors and people that live around you that have no clue about the massive love and intricate weaving of this story. They have no idea that those stories that they watch on television, those stories that they read in those great books of literature are really cries from the heart for the greatest story of them all. And that it is a story that includes them and the capturing of their heart and of their life and of their motivation. And what they need to hear from you, not necessarily right now, is the condemnation that we're pretty good at giving. But what they need is the love that God has shown us. And you join in the story by exalting the author, Prince Charming, and the Spirit. That you live your life to bring them glory and you share the story with as many people as possible. This morning, I just wonder what God is asking you to do in relation to how the story has unfolded in your life. 